Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. In 1321, Guillaume Bellibasta was in hiding, living in southern France. He was possibly the last surviving Cathar perfecti in the world. For more than a century, the Cathars had been tortured, butchered, and burnt alive by the Catholic Church. The Church wanted all heretics wiped out, but the Cathars seemed to be enemy number one. Those who recanted their faith or fled managed to keep their lives. Somehow, Belibasta survived. Until one day, when he crossed paths with a man named Arnaud Sicre, a secret informant for the Church. One slip of the tongue and Belibasta was shackled and taken to the castle Villarouge Terminez. There he was interrogated, tortured, and sentenced to die. But as he was tied to the stake and the pyre below him was lit on fire, Belibasta allegedly spoke a prophecy. In 700 years, the laurel will become green again. Good people will return. Which could mean the Cathars will be reborn in 2021. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second and final episode on the Cathars, a pacifist, ascetic religious movement that believed in two gods, one good, one evil. The Cathars first appeared in Europe sometime during the 12th century, mostly concentrated in southern France and northern Italy. Last week, we discussed the philosophical questions that led to the creation of the Cathars' dualist beliefs. We also examined their culture, rituals, social structure, and their tumultuous relationship with the Catholic Church. And we considered whether the Cathars created the most popular form of medieval literature, courtly love poetry. This week, we'll follow the Cathars' descent into obscurity. After the Catholic Church's Albigensian crusade against heretics, they were nearly wiped from the face of the earth. But some popular conspiracy theories have emerged since their disappearance, like that they're the keepers of the Holy Grail, the cup Jesus allegedly used at the Last Supper. It's said to heal wounds and grant eternal youth. Finally, we'll take a detailed look at those who claim to be modern-day Cathars, will determine whether their ancestors managed to survive 700 years in the shadows. Kill them all. God will know his own. As the story goes, the Cistercian monk Arnaud Amalric was asked how the crusading armies should distinguish between their enemy, the Cathars, and their own. Supposedly, that was his answer kill them all, God will know his own. Historians disagree on whether he ever actually said those exact words, but they do agree that the sentiment holds true. For the Catholic Church, purging the world of the Cathars was worth every casualty. 
And they proved it on July 22, 1209, when their armies tore through the French town of Béziers. As legend has it, when all was said and done, Arnaud wrote a letter back to the Pope. Today, Your Holiness, 20,000 citizens were put to the sword, regardless of rank, age, or sex. It was their first siege against the Cathars, and a great victory for the Church. It sent a message of terror, not only to the Cathars, but to those that protected them. They would leave none standing. The crusade had begun the year prior, in 1208, when Pope Innocent III called upon northern France to take up God's cause. Or rather, the Pope's interpretation of God's cause. The Pope rallied the lords and noblemen of northern France and asked them to ride their armies south to deal with the Cathar insurrection. Tens of thousands of men enlisted. The incentives were appealing, to say the least. Lords and nobility were promised land and wealth, and they knew the Catholic Church was good on their word. At the time, the Church owned up to one-third of all the land in Europe. In addition, anyone who enlisted in the Crusade would have all of their debts suspended, all of their sins forgiven, and would be assured a place in heaven. Odds were high that these men were in debt to the Church. Every year they had to pay tithes, which were a sort of religious tax. The church would take either 10% of a worker's income or 10% of whatever they produced. A freeze on debts and eternal salvation weren't the only benefits of volunteering either. Less officially, there was the promise that the men could get rich quick by ransacking and pillaging the towns they sieged. So they were happy to don the crusader's cross. Now, it's important to remember who the church was fighting. The Cathars were poor, predominantly women, and pacifists. They held menial jobs like basket weaving. They loathed the concept of violence against animals, let alone an all-out war. Which is why the crusade was, by definition, not a war at all. It was a genocide. According to a sociologist and research professor at the Barcelona Institute of International Studies, Martin Shaw, war is directed against sovereigns and armies, while a genocide is against subjects, civilians, and populations. In fact, some historians claim that it was the world's first ideological genocide, meaning it was based on a belief system rather than race, culture, or homeland. Because the Cathars weren't willing to fight, their survival relied on their sympathizers, leaders who could provide protection, men who dared oppose the Catholic Church. And luckily, they knew some. In 1204, four years before the start of the Crusade, the looming threat of the Church had convinced Cathar leaders, bishops and perfecti, that they needed refuge. They fled to safety in strongholds like the Chateau of Montségur. But their peace of mind was short-lived. After the town of Béziers was raised in July 1209, the reality of what it meant to sympathize with the Cathars started to set in. By August, the Crusaders arrived in Carcassonne. One of their first measures was to cut off the town's water supply. After what had happened at Béziers, Carcassonne was quick to surrender. The Crusaders drove all the citizens out of the French city so they could loot at will. City after city, stronghold after stronghold, fell to the Crusaders. In March 1210, 
Hundreds of Cathars in Brahm allegedly had their lips cut off and their eyes gouged out. One man was left with one eye so he could lead the rest out of town. The church believed that anyone who saw the blind, mutilated heretics would view them as a symbol of God's mercy. They were lucky to be alive. In July 1210, in Minerve, the Cathars were given the option to repent and convert. Few did. Instead, hundreds were burnt alive. Some supposedly walked straight into the flames themselves, unwilling to die at the hands of an executioner. In May 1211, in Levaux, another 400 Cathars were torched at the stake. A perfecti named Geralda de Lerac was thrown into a well. She was then pelted with stones until those above could no longer hear her screams. The crusade went on for two more decades before it came to an end in 1229 with the Treaty of Meaux. It ceded all Cathar lands and renounced all political autonomy to the French king, Louis IX, who was loyal to the church. Which meant the Cathars were without any protection, political or military, Leaders who'd once fought by their side were now ordered to hunt them down and kill them. The crusade may have ended, but the violence continued. Documentation, however, slowly fizzled out, so the details of the next few years are vague. Until, that is, a new pope incited a new era of bloodshed, the Inquisition. It was issued by Pope Gregory IX in 1234, but it was directed at more than just the Cathars. The decree was to uproot any and all heretical movements in Europe. Those Cathars who chose to renounce their faith were supposed to wear yellow crosses as a sign of their shame and be left alive. But it was really just more of the same, sieges, looting, burning all heretics at the stake. By May 1243, the Cathars in France were scattered to the wind. There was only one stronghold left, the Chateau of Montségur, located about 560 feet up a hillside near the Pyrenees. It was finally coming under siege. Around 200 of the Cathars' surviving leaders held council inside the fort they managed to convince a few hundred knights and soldiers to protect them and their families. Meanwhile, the Inquisition's armies hurled massive stones at the castle, stones that are to this day still littered around its grounds. Miraculously, the Cathars and the knights who protected them were able to ward off the siege for 10 months. In that time, 25 more men and women in the castle elected to become perfecti fully understanding what that would mean should the castle fall. Which, like all others before it, it did in March 1244. More than 200 Cathar Perfecti, including those who'd only recently converted, were burned in a monumental funeral pyre at the foot of the castle. Today, the French refer to the site as the Field of the Burnt. Most historians consider the 10-month siege at the castle of Montségur as the Cathars' final stand. Any remaining practitioners fled to caves and forests to hide. Others were concealed by family or friends, 
Any further Cathar worship happened in secret. In 1252, Pope Innocent IV authorized torture to elicit confessions from surviving Cathars, and these confessions are the foundation for everything that we know about them. As we said last episode, the Cathars renounced all worldly things, institutions, wealth, notoriety, sex, power, which is one explanation for why the Cathars didn't have any prior documentation. The other? The Catholic Church burnt it all because of a secret they didn't want exposed to the public, that the Cathars were actually the keepers of the Holy Grail. Coming up, the Cathars, the Da Vinci Code, and the Third Reich. Now back to the story. Beginning in 1208, the Catholic Church fought to rid the world of Cathars and heretics like them. In its various iterations, the onslaught lasted more than a century. In 1244, the fall of the chateau at Montségur drove the few remaining members of the Cathars into hiding. In 1321, the last perfecti on earth, Guillaume Bellibasta, was interrogated, tortured, and burnt at the stake. The next time they made a significant appearance in history, it wasn't in the flesh. It was in the writings of a man named Napoleon Perrault, a poet, historian, and author of the book Histoire des Albigeois. Perrault was moved by the story of the Cathars, their heroism, their faith, their martyrdom. He became obsessed. And then, in 1870, he claimed to have learned new information, a secret never before revealed. During the siege of Montségur, four Cathar Perfecti had managed to escape the castle with an unknown treasure, and they'd hidden it somewhere in the Pyrenees. This information created a renewed interest in Catharism. It meant that the community of ascetic pacifists may have been much more than humble basket weavers. Those who read Peyrat's writing on the Cathars weren't interested in their religion or their piety. They were interested in their treasure and the possibility of finding it. After Peyrat, the next person to advance the theory of the Cathars' mysterious treasure was Jules Duanel. He theoretically had some connection to another secret society, the Freemasons. In addition, he took a great interest in the religions of the East, like the Cathars, and founded a modern Gnostic church. Duanel became the first person to corroborate something strange happening inside Montségur. In 1888, he claimed a vision revealed to him that an ancient religious service was held inside the castle. Duanel's words stirred further interest in the treasure, but the next person to make substantial progress on Peyrat's discovery was Josepha Peladon, a French writer and artist who was, at the time, living in Paris. Peladon belonged to yet another notorious secret society, the Rosicrucians. In fact, Peladon had founded two branches, the Kabbalistic Order of the Rose Cross and the Ordre du Temple de la Rose et Croix of the Temple and the Grail. His experience with secret societies may have proved useful in unraveling the mystery, he knew how underground organizations and hidden messaging worked. So, he turned to the literature most associated with the Cathar religion, courtly love. 
As we covered last episode, the genre is most easily recognized by its trope of damsels in distress and the noble, honorable men who come to rescue them. It cropped up in France right alongside Catharism. Many historians believe the Cathars inspired the creation of the entire literary movement, something that the authors writing the genre may have even been Cathars. One prominent courtly love writer was Chrétien de Troyes. He created some of the most famous legends of King Arthur and his court, including Percival le Comte du Graal, the first known tale about one night's quest for the infamous Holy Grail. The protagonist of the poem is Perceval, a young boy who wants to be a knight, so he leaves home to go to King Arthur's court. Soon after, he hears a prophecy from a young girl. Perceval is destined for greatness. Over the course of his travels, Perceval encounters the Fisher King on a river. The Fisher King invites Perceval to his castle. Then, at dinner, Perceval witnesses a ceremony that contains an elaborate grail. The Grail is never referred to as holy. It's not even called the Grail, it's just a Grail. The poem hints at its magical potential, but never specifies how it manifests. That may be because Perceval, Lucan du Graal, went unfinished. A full version of the story wasn't completed until the 13th century, when German poet Wolfram von Eschenbach wrote Patzival. By that time, the mythos of Chrétien's grail had expanded. It had taken on the religious connotation that's now popular today, the mystical chalice that was used by Jesus at the Last Supper and which caught his blood after he was crucified. It was allegedly capable of healing the sick and granting great wealth to those who used it. In the 19th century, Richard Wagner wrote two famous operas based on the tale, Parsifal and Lohengrin. Notably, Wagner's operas and Eschenbach's epic Potsifal all mention a particular mountain. There standeth no berg so mighty as Monsalvash. Its towers shall fear no foemen, and straight the pathway that wendeth its walls anear. Mount Monsalvash. The more writer and conspiracy theorist Joseph Van Peladon turned the phrase over in his mind, the more he became convinced that the mountain was, in fact, Montsegur the last stronghold of the Cathars. If Peyra's claims were true, and four Cathars really did smuggle a treasure out of Montsegur during the Inquisition, it was incredibly valuable. They wouldn't take such a risk otherwise. And given the Cathars' connection to the genre of Patsival, Duenel believed the similarity between Mount Montsalvash and Montsegur was significant. He insisted that the treasure Peyra referred to must have been the Holy Grail. As far as we can tell, Peledon was the first to directly connect the Cathars and the Grail. Afterwards, interest in the Cathars and their magic relic continued for decades. Then, after World War I, there was an explosion of interest in the occult and the spiritual world, and with it, the mythos of the Cathars really took off. Perhaps the most notable voice to enter the conversation was Otto Rahn. Rahn was a German writer and scholar. In the 1930s, he published two books that connected the Cathars to the Holy Grail, The Crusade Against the Grail and Lucifer's Court. The books were so compelling that they quickly fell into the evil hands of Heinrich Himmler, a man who wanted nothing more than the power the cup offered. Himmler was one of the leaders of the Nazi party and the mind responsible for the Holocaust. 
Allegedly, upon reading Rand's work, Himmler began research into the south of France, looking for the Grail himself, and some believe he found it. Of course, that can never be confirmed. Today, Otto Rahn is best known for influencing two famous pieces of pop culture. He's allegedly the inspiration behind the film franchise Indiana Jones, and his theories inspired elements in Dan Brown's novel The Da Vinci Code and the film by the same name. Other theories have been layered onto Rahn's, including the Cathars had ties to the Knights Templar, another secret society. The treasure was not the Holy Grail, but the Ark of the Covenant, a golden container said to house the original stone tablets containing God's Ten Commandments, and of course, a separate theory that the Holy Grail was not an object at all, but a bloodline, the direct descendants of Jesus, who had a child with Mary Magdalene. In this version, the treasure that the Cathars snuck out of the castle was a piece of paper detailing the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's some issues with that supposition, though. One of the most critical Cathar doctrines was that Jesus didn't come to Earth in physical form. He was a sort of spiritual hologram. Therefore, any theory that espouses a Cathar connection to his bloodline can't possibly be true. Unless, of course, the Cathars were intentionally misleading the Catholic Church, asserting that Jesus was never flesh is a pretty convincing story if they were trying to cover up his genealogy. Maybe. But creating a religious text as thorough and convincing as the Book of Two Principles, which we discussed last time, seems like an awful lot of work. Not to mention the connection between the Cathars and the work of Wagner, de Troyes, and von Eschenbach is thin at best. It's based on the nominal similarity of a mountain to Montsegur. And that German work was only loosely inspired by an unfinished French poem that may or may not have had anything to do with the Cathars. To be fair, some historians really do find a connection between the Cathars and de Troyes' tales of the Holy Grail. Yes, but in order to take any of these theories seriously, we're taking two people at their word, Jules Duanel and Napoleon Perrault. Duanel's proof of spiritual happenings at Montsegur came to him in a vision. And Perrault? He started it all by claiming that four Cathar Perfecti smuggled treasure out of the castle during its siege. And he admitted that the only evidence to support his story also came to him in a dream. Which means even though the theories are fun to think about, there might not be any evidence connecting the Cathars to treasure. Unless you believe in visions, that is. Exactly. The Cathars rejected worldly possessions, which theoretically includes treasure. So unless Pebron and Duanel were actually oracles, and the Cathars really did orchestrate one of the biggest cover-ups known to mankind, it's not likely. Thankfully, that means the Nazis never got access to the Holy Grail and its powers, which explains why Himmler, you know, died. But did the Cathars? As it turns out, they might still be around today. Coming up, the living legacy of the Cathars. Now the conclusion to our story. Few Cathars survived the Crusade and Inquisition that lasted nearly the entirety of the 13th century. Those who did went into hiding. 
their martyrdom and their legacy have since given birth to innumerable conspiracy theories. The most prominent being, they buried the Holy Grail in the Pyrenees Mountains between France and Spain. Most historians dismiss these theories as fantasy. That said, they also believe there are no surviving Cathars left in the world. But a quick Google search returns a number of hits, including Cathar.org. According to this website, these modern Cathars were founded by a man named John Bogomil, who was born in Russia in 1946. To get a sense of the organization's tone, here's how the About section introduces him. John Bogomil is undoubtedly a prominent personality, a mystic of the highest rank, a notable thinker, and a brilliant writer. More than 500 divinely inspired books and treaties flowed from his pen. He astounds with an inexhaustible source of wisdom and the penetrating voice of the last truth. The biography that follows is just as assured and strong-willed. John was an incredible musician, writer, and poet who, from a young age, rejected Soviet communist ideals. Though he could have become a famous writer, he chose instead to become a pilgrim in search of God's truth. He visited temples and monasteries all over the world in search of answers to life's mysteries. What exactly he was looking for isn't entirely clear. But according to John, one day he found spiritual counsel under a woman known only as Mother Euphrosynia. She was allegedly a member of a secret religious sect known as the Church of Martyrs. They were founded on Bogomil principles. Let's break that down. It's not a coincidence that Bogomil is also John's surname. Bogomil here refers to a dualist movement that began in Bulgaria sometime around the 10th century. Without getting into too much detail, some historians believe that the Cathars were descendants of the Bogomils. We can confidently say that John's last name was inspired by the Bogomils. More than likely, John changed it in reverence to them. And Mother Euphrosynia was one of the spiritual leaders of the Bogomil Church of Martyrs. She looked like a beggar woman, dressed simply in an old, plain coat. But she was so much more than that. The many different claims of Mother Euphrosynia's unequaled spiritual gifts include... She could see the future. She lived in another dimension. She had the power to heal the sick. And if she looked at you, she could know everything about you. Anyone who followed her could apparently achieve perfect holiness because of her unearthly love and kindness. Years after Mother Euphrosynia's death, her small coffin was dug up. When it was opened, it was apparently overflowing with myrrh. Myrrh is historically connected to many religions, but most relevant to our purposes, in the New Testament, myrrh was one of the three gifts the Magi gave to Jesus when he was born. So the appearance of myrrh in Euphrosynia's coffin suggests she had a connection to the divine. Before she died, Mother Euphrosynia and the other leaders of the Church of Martyrs made John Bogomil a priest. Before long, he became the head of that church. Then, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, John went on to found another house of worship called the Mother of God Church in Russia. From there, he began spreading Catharism to other communities around the world. 
How John made the leap from the Church of Martyrs to Catharism is unclear, but like his mentor, John Bogomil soon found that he had spiritual gifts as well. Mary Magdalene allegedly appeared to John in a dream. She called him a kindred one and told him that he was like her spirit. After such a divine revelation, John Bogomil became known as a prophet. He's since written more than 40 volumes of his confidential conversations with Mary Magdalene, who he refers to as a queen. Those books have been named The Revelations of Our Lady and are part of the modern Cathars teachings today. In addition to the revelations of Our Lady, John Bogomil has written books like The Holy Grail, Being in Virginal Love, The Immortals, and The New Gospel of Mary Magdalene, many of which are published under the name John of the Holy Grail or Blessed John of the Holy Grail. Unfortunately, of the books that are still in print, most are going to cost you a pretty penny. A couple are currently selling on Amazon for the specific price of $912.89. But maybe they're worth it. John's online bio ends with these words. Any meeting with him transfigures an ordinary person into a beautiful-faced angel, shaken to the bottom of his heart by the revelation of the ineffable beauty of unearthly wisdom. What you can learn from John Bogomel is exorbitant love for people. One thing is undeniable. The messaging of these modern Cathars puts hope, love, and kindness at the forefront, but the presentation of their origins begs a few questions. The first being, who were the Church of the Martyrs and Mother Euphrosynia? In our research, we couldn't find any documentation to corroborate the existence of a woman who went by that name, at least none who were associated with the Cathars and would have been alive to meet John. He also stated online that it was a complete, constant surprise to him why nobody saw this holy living being. Which could imply that, similar to Mary Magdalene, Euphysenia only appeared to John in visions. But that would seemingly contradict all of her magnificent spiritual work. Alternatively, it meant that she was so lowly that nobody paid much attention to her. But that wouldn't explain why there's no proof that she existed. In fact, you'd think that someone who performed such miracles would be rather well documented. It also seems strange that modern Catharism seems to be influenced by the conspiracy theories of the 19th century. According to historical evidence, the medieval Cathars thought very little of Mary Magdalene and thought even less of a Holy Grail. And yet, John has published the New Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the first image you see on their homepage is that of the Chateau at Montségur. It also seems a bit strange that the only mention of the prophecy made by the last Cathar Perfecti, Guillaume Bellibasta, comes from their website. It says, In 700 years the laurel will become green again, good people will return. Maybe the prophecy was invented to give a sense of authority to John's movement which is conveniently happening 700 years after Belibasta's death. The only thing that would have been more convenient would have been if it said 670 years later. But that might have raised a few eyebrows.
Today's Cathars seem to have some reach, though. They claim John Bogomil has met with religious and political leaders from around the world, including the Catholic bishops of Japan, members of the International Bibliographic Center, and the president of the International Institute of Integral Human Sciences. In May 2001, he reportedly was recognized by the International Association of Educators for World Peace, a global nonprofit that has worked with the United Nations. In theory, the recognition is all tied to John Bogomil's philosophical and historical study. The mission on the Cathars front page reads, the goals of the Cathar Church are to research and shed light on the true history, culture, and spirituality of Catharism in the widest sense and proclaim it as the original foundation of general European culture. Catharism has always existed and did not perish. From where we sit, John Bogomil's Cathars share very little in common with the medieval Cathars. Though these modern Cathars preach simplicity, they don't appear to practice any of the extreme asceticism of their predecessors. They dress in colorful, rich fabrics and streetwear, not the simple rags of their ancestors. And there's no mention of abstinence, poverty, labor, self-sacrifice, or denial of desire in any form. Just a laser focus on being nice. And interestingly, they don't appear to claim any lineage to the medieval Cathars. In fact, John Bogomil believes that there isn't a scholar in the world who knows anything about them, which is why he claims that his divine revelations are the most accurate account of their existence. His dismissal of historical documentation makes a certain amount of sense. Most everything we know about the medieval Cathars comes from confessions made to their enemies, and thus has to be taken with a grain of salt. Though John is right to question the confessions, we can't discount their legitimacy entirely. If all of the medieval Cathars were lying to the Catholic Church to hide the secrets of their faith, they must have met beforehand to get their stories straight, because their confessions were strikingly consistent. And that just doesn't seem possible. What does seem likely is that John Bogomel is using the memory of the Cathars as martyrs and as beacons of goodness to help in the branding of his own religion. His claims should receive the same scrutiny as any historian's research. He's asking everyone to take him at his word, which gives his word power. In the wrong hands, power can be abused. The good news is that modern Cathars appear to have only good intentions. There doesn't seem to be any need to worry. Kindness and love are, after all, virtues we should all strive for. As for who knows best, though, we believe scholars. There are likely no direct descendants of the 13th century Perfecti. The French Cathars died with Bellabasta. The Italians shortly followed suit. Maybe there have been communities of Cathars performing baptisms in secret for centuries, but it's unlikely. More likely, they live on today in a more figurative sense. The first Cathars paved the way for many progressive ideologies, like equality of the sexes, vegetarian diets, and justice for the poor. If nothing else, their values live on. On the other hand, if the Book of Two Principles is right, if their faith is true, if we're all Cathars, then we're all fallen angels living in hell.
Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Cathars, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Cathars by Malcolm Barber extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 